This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Majority Report, Media Matters, On the Media, Jim Hightower, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Young Turks, The David Pakman Show, and Counterspin with a bonus clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. This uh, is an awesome piece of audio. The video is even funnier, I think, in some ways. But uh, Elizabeth Warren, uh, we'll, we'll play this audio. It's really stunning. She was at, she was in Brockton, Mass. Brockton, Massachusetts. And uh, she was doing a uh, volunteer speech. She's running for Senate. In about uh, 13 months, 12 months, I guess, you know, she's running for Senate, and um, I think she still has got a primary uh, campaign. I don't know. I think she's still facing some uh, opposition in the primary campaign, but I, uh, I, don't, I think most of the big players have gotten out from the, uh, you know, campaign. So, she's in Brockton, and uh, she's about to give her speech, you know, to all the volunteers, and some dude gets up and uh, starts talking to her. She's from the Tea Party. He's from the Tea Party. She's not. She's in the Democratic Party. Uh, you know that she's been fighting, you know, she's been fighting particularly for years and years, talking about the contracts that, uh, you know, the credit card companies make you sign. She's a, she was, you know, a Harvard uh, professor. And so uh, this dude gets up. The audio's a little bit dirty in the beginning, but listen to it, and we'll stop it as we go through. Here's the video. Elizabeth Warren speaking to uh, protesters, uh, excuse me, to uh, supporters, volunteers. Not just supporters, volunteers. That's important. Okay, now listen to this. Okay, stop the tape. Pause it. We are 12 months out from a campaign, from an election. She's got a room full of people in Brockton. Just in Brockton. Literally, it looked like there was a couple hundred, if not more. The amount of energy in her campaign now is astonishing. It is wicked huge. This is a working meeting. I, I want to start by thanking every one of you for being here. It means an enormous amount to me. Can I ask you a question before you begin? I know. I've been uh, out of work since uh, February of 2010. And um, I understand that uh, you are reporting with several print media, and I think I saw you on television taking credit for the uh, Occupy Wall Street movement. Pause it. Uh, he says, essentially, right there, the guy gets up, he says, I've heard in uh, print media that... Uh, you're the uh, intellectual creator of the so-called uh, Tea Party. 
I mean, the uh, Occupy Wall Street movement. And everybody moans and this and that, you know, because this guy's like, ugh, why you got to do this, dude? But she handles it incredibly well. Uh, Sir, I... Why don't you sit down? No, 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 it's all right. Let me say two things. I'm very sorry to hear that you've been out of work. I'm also very sorry that the recent jobs bill that would have brought 22,000 jobs to Massachusetts did not pass in its I'm also, since you asked, I also want to say about Occupy Wall Street. I've been protesting what's been going on on Wall Street for a very long time. It is, as I've said, it is an independent and organic movement. They must, of course, obey the law like everybody else, but they have their own agenda and they will develop it as they develop it. So what he heard, what he said there, if you couldn't hear it, he said, well, if you're the intellectual creator of the so-called party, uh, you're a socialist whore, and I don't want anything to do with you. And then he says, and your boss was foreign, is foreign born. And then he takes his backpack and he says, I'm out of here. And he walks to the door. They're clapping. He's leaving. So, we are here to do work, and I think we have a reminder that we have a lot of work. And then you can hear people laughing. And why are they laughing? Because the dude, he tried to go out a locked door. <laughs> so awesome. She handled that amazingly. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Julia Krieger. Fox News was busy this morning defending the GOP presidential candidates after last night's CNBC debate. By most accounts, Rick Perry's performance was less than stellar. It's three agencies of government when I get there that are gone. Commerce, education, and the, um, uh, what's the third one there? Let's see. You need five. Oh, five. Yeah, okay. So five. commerce, education, and uh, the... Um, uh, Perry appeared on Fox News the next morning to explain away his embarrassing gaffe and was welcomed by a sympathetic Gretchen Carlson. My goodness, I feel for you when I watched that tape and when I saw it last night. Uh, by, by so many accounts, you were having your best debate up until that moment. And I, I know you just want to take it back, and, and we've been empathizing with you this morning. Anyone who's ever been in a position on stage empathizes, I think. This week saw the first sprinkling of what is likely to be a deluge of campaign advertising from a gathering storm of cumulonimbus known as super PACs. There is a pro-Obama super PAC called Priorities USA, a pro-Romney super PAC called Restore Our Future, and a pro-Perry super PAC called Make Us Great Again. Be afraid. 
very. Since the Supreme Court decision in the Citizens United case last year, certain political action committees may now collect unlimited contributions without disclosing it's the people. It's incomprehensible how much more screwed up it is now than it was uh, before Citizens United. It is inarguable that these organizations exist for no other purpose but to elect the candidates that they are associated with. Super PACs were the direct result of the Citizens United decision in which the Supreme Court held that the government can't stop corporations or unions from spending money to persuade voters. Super PACs may spend unlimited amounts of money so long as they don't directly coordinate with a candidate's campaign. The Karl Rove-linked super PAC American Crossroads and its nonprofit partner Crossroads GPS have announced they plan to spend $240 million in 2012, double what they'd first projected. This week, in what's seen as the start of the super PAC TV ad downpour, Make Us Great Again began running pro-Perry TV ads in two key primary states, South Carolina and Iowa, and the pro-Obama super PAC released some anti-Romney web ads. Peter H. Stone of the Center for Public Integrity says he expected the Super PAC ads would be especially negative, but the Perry ads are downright sunny so far. One thing that struck people about the first ads was that they were softer and a little bit friendlier than people expected. His dad was a tenant farmer, his wife a nurse. Rick Perry These were ads that basically tried to boost Perry's image by talking about his accomplishments in Texas. Manufacturing exports. Past major lawsuits. Many of the super PACs are seen as having the ability to do more negative ads because they're not formally connected. Make Us Great Again is responsible for the content of this ad. In fact, they're not legally allowed to be connected to the campaigns or the candidates in any way. Okay, but most of us who have been following this have the sense that there is barely an angstrom of space between these super PACs and the campaigns. However, technically, they may be fulfilling the letter of the law. Many of these super PACs have been set up by former close associates of the candidates. In the case of Perry, it was his former chief of staff and a longtime donor in Texas, the Romney Super PAC was started by three people who were connected to his last presidential bid. And in the case of Obama, we have his former deputy White House spokesman, Bill Burton, and a top White House aide, Sean Sweeney, who started that one. So there's that level of ties. There are also other ties. You have candidates who are allowed to go to fundraisers for... Super PACs that have no ties to their campaign. Exactly. The rule that the Federal Election Commission has written is, yes, you can go to the Super PAC events, you can thank people for coming, you can ask them for limited contributions. Yeah, you can ask them for up to 5000 but they can give as much as Correct. they want. Correct. They can give 500000 or a million, and many of these <laughs> Super PACs are being fueled by donations on that order. But the candidate themselves is not allowed to ask for the unlimited amount of money. Why is it that the Republicans are so far out in front of the Democrats in super PAC fundraising? There are a couple of big reasons for that. One is that the Republican National Committee, which has long been a chief fundraising vehicle for Republicans, was in turmoil because its chairman, Michael Steele, alienated a lot of the big donors. And strategists like Karl Rove and Ed Gillespie realized they needed something else to help Republican candidates in 2010. 
That was even before the Supreme Court ruled on Citizens United. And together, these two factors really helped get the Republican groups off the ground in a big way. But what about President Obama's criticism of the Citizens United decision? Do you think that set the Democrats back in super PAC funding? Were they afraid that they would look hypocritical? They were concerned about the hypocrisy factor. And the White House had even quietly urged them not to start too many of these groups. They didn't have the kind of organizational problems that Republicans had. And they had unions, too, who were always powerful allies and were powerful allies again last year. But now the Democrats do have super PACs up and running, including Obama. Does this mean that the party has abandoned its principles or that the president has? It does open him up to hypocrisy charges. But they also say, look, the Republicans have done this. They won the last election in part because of their outside groups. And they justify it as they're not going to go into a major election year with one hand tied behind their backs. Peter, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Peter Stone is group leader for Money and Politics at iWatch News, which is part of the Center for Public Integrity. The path of campaign finance regulation has been long and twisted, leading all the way back to Watergate. Picture this. The year, 1971. The place, the White House. The industry using illegal campaign money to grease the wheels, big milk. Here's NPR's Peter Overby. If you go to the Watergate tapes... You can hear Nixon meeting with the milk producers in the cabinet room, joshing with them. And then later that same day, there's a tape of an Oval Office meeting with Nixon and his advisors. They all agree that the milk subsidy isn't going to be cut. It's going to be raised. At the end of the tape, John Ehrlichman, the domestic advisor, makes a joke about, let's all go get a glass of milk while it's still cheap. And everybody laughs. (laughs) Very funny. But that encounter with Big Milk was a big scandal at the time, right? The milk producers wanted to give $2 million to help Nixon get reelected. That was a scandal. Then as now, direct contributions from corporations to political campaigns was illegal. And that led to the creation of the Federal Election Commission? Right. You had several laws coming through Congress as the Watergate scandal evolved. First was disclosure by the candidate committees and the party committees. Then laws that encouraged the rise of political action committees, things stayed on an even keel for a few election cycles. And then in the late 80s, you had the rise of soft money, corporate money and union money and money from rich individuals going to the party committees. In reaction to that, there was the great bipartisan effort known as McCain-Feingold. The way to look at it is the Watergate-era laws set limits on the amount of money and the kind of money that could come into federal election campaigns. Soft money was a way around that. McCain-Feingold cut off the flow of soft money. As soon as McCain-Feingold became law, there were efforts to poke holes in it, and it's been gradually perforated. Okay, so one of the ways it was weakened, I believe, was the rise of, and I wish these things didn't all have numbers attached to them, groups called 527s. One of them famously gave rise to the term swift boating. How did they work around McCain-Feingold, and do they still matter? The appealing thing about them was that they had no contribution limits. They could spend as much as they wanted from any source they wanted on mostly attack ads. 
And in the early days, there was no disclosure. Politicians on both sides were targeted. They didn't like it. Congress passed a law forcing disclosure. After that, a lot of the outside money shifted to another type of group, the 501c4 issue advocacy groups. Wait a minute. I think I know those. Those are those tax-exempt groups that are not supposed to devote the majority of their money to political ads, right? To political spending, yeah. The way 501c4s are working nowadays, a lot of them, they are running attack ads during campaign season. And during the off-season, they're running ads on legislation in Congress, tying it to certain incumbents or certain parties. So the message is a partisan-slash-ideological message, but it's not crossing over the line what would be considered campaign express advocacy messaging. What I learned, essentially, from Stephen Colbert is that if you create one of these entities, you can funnel that non-disclosed money into the super PAC, and all anybody needs to know is that it came from that 501c4. Right. There are several super PACs that have 501c4s running alongside them. American Crossroads is one. Crossroads GPS is the C4 sidekick. There's a Rick Perry super PAC that has a 501c4 connected to it. And the super PAC that's supporting President Obama also has a C4 connected to it. So again, just as the description of what constitutes campaign ads is pretty much meaningless, so it seems is this disclosure requirement. What with the creation of these non-disclosing sidekick organizations that can funnel money? So every restriction is basically zeroed out by a loophole practically from the outset. And in fact, the coming battle over political money is whether there should be as much disclosure as there has been. There's a big push on the conservative side to limit disclosure, saying that the message is the important thing and the electorate doesn't gain anything, really, by knowing who's behind the message. Do you think when we look back, the election of 2012 will seem like the Wild West? It seems that way now. I'm not sure that by the time we get to 2016 or 2020, it's still going to look that way. There's a steady evolution in the judicial thinking away from anti-corruption rationale that was prevalent in the 70s and toward the ascendancy of First Amendment free speech rights. With the justices that are on the Supreme Court, it seems like the die is cast for things to continue that way for quite a while. So you're talking about potentially going from the wild, wild west to Mad Max. No, no comment. Okay, Peter, thank you very much. Sure. Glad to do it.
One year from now, Americans will be caught in an unprecedented blizzard of campaign ads. Most of this ad blizzard will not come from the candidates, but from ads secretly funded by huge corporations. This is because a five-man cabal on the Supreme Court issued an edict that perverts nature itself. In a case titled Citizens United, the five decreed that Shazam! Lifeless corporate elites are henceforth persons with more electioneering rights than us real-life persons. In a black-robed coup against our democracy, the Supremes rule that a corporation's money is speech and that CEOs may dump unlimited sums of it into their own ad campaigns to elect or defeat any candidates they choose. Of course, it's a grotesque, Kafkaesque lie to say that Walmart, Goldman Sachs, ExxonMobil, and the rest are people with political rights equal to, much less superior to, human beings. As a friend of mine puts it, a corporation is not a person until Texas executes one. The good news is that real citizens of our country are united against Citizens United. In a Heart Research poll, 87% of Democrats, 82% of Independents, and even 68% of Republicans favor passing a constitutional amendment to overrule the court's bizarre decision and make clear that only people are people. Sadly, though not surprisingly, our national elected officials, including Republicans, Democrats, and Tea Partiers, are too hooked on corporate money to stand up for us, for America's democracy. So do we just have to surrender to the corporados? Of course not. We're Americans. This is Jim Hightower saying, Rebel! A new We the People campaign is rallying grassroots folks to sign a Declaration of Independence from Corporate Power. To sign and join the action, go to wethepeoplecampaign.org. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal, it will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. For the 80% of you who listen to this program via the enhanced version of the show, which supports chapter markers, the following clip will include visual elements. Every four years, every presidential campaign season, we have come to expect unscripted moments on the campaign trail. Unscripted moments that stick with a candidate throughout their time in the race. Uh, they're usually off the cuff, usually unplanned, but they do leave an impression. Uh, one of the categories for this type of thing tends to be cultural references. Candidates making cultural references or sometimes missing them. So, like, there was Walter Mondale with Where's the Beef? Or uh, Poppy Bush not knowing what a barcode scanner was in a grocery store. Cultural references can work in a good way to humanize a candidate, or they can make them seem elitist and weird. Uh, sometimes, though, a cultural reference moment does not necessarily help or hurt the candidate. Uh, it just sticks with you anyway, because it seems telling in some way about the candidate as a person. In that category, consider Newt Gingrich's cell phone ringtone. Good morning. Here we go. <laughs> 
can you hear what he's playing there? I love that we have the subtitle showing music. Uh, it, it, it's Dancing Queen. Um, uh, Newt Gingrich having, ha- having as his cell phone ringtone ABBA's Dancing Queen has been reported in the past, but this is actually the first audio confirmation we have had of Dancing Queen going off in his pocket and him having to take his phone out and turn it off. Newt Gingrich's cell phone ringtone is Dancing Queen by ABBA. Uh, John Huntsman, on the other hand, should be thought of less as Swedish disco uh, and more as Pacific Northwest genius grunge. But to hear these two go at it over here, it's almost incredible. You've got Governor Romney, who called it a fraud uh, in his book, No Apology. I don't know if that was written by Kurt Cobain or not. Get it? See, Kurt Cobain, all apologies. A Nirvana reference. Apparently totally lost on that Republican debate audience in Florida. Judge your audience, sir. Mr. Huntsman may be wizard, but that was not a magic moment. Uh, Mitt Romney, in, in trying to humanize his rather stick figurey persona, uh, Mitt Romney has tried to drop some pop cultural knowledge on his peeps. Last time around, you'll remember he sort of blew it with the who let the dogs out thing. He's with a group of African-American youngsters. Do we still actually, do we have the um, who let the dogs out tape? Do we still have that? Who's got your camera, though? <laughs> Who let the dogs out? Who, who? Still awkward after all these years. Uh, Mitt Romney's cultural references, who, who, this time around, um, have not been as embarrassing or bordering on scandalous as that one. Uh, they've more just been kind of uh, confirming him as seeming stiff and out of date. There's something special about lakes where you don't get salt on you after you've been swimming, uh, where there's no seaweed. Um, well, you don't have to worry about things eating you in the water, right? And I don't worry about sharks, but somehow in the back of my mind, after seeing that movie Jaws, you know, it just, it just makes you think. In some respects, this is the, uh, the Obama economy is a where's Waldo economy. It, it is it, it, finding a job, a, a good paying job in this economy is harder than, find, harder than finding Waldo in one of his books. I mean, this is a, the Obama economy is a where's Waldo economy. Not a clip of Mitt Romney from the 90s. Uh, that was last month. Where's Waldo? Yeah. So every four years we get treated to inadvertent and ill-advised and weirdly telling cultural references from the presidential candidates. Happens every, every time. Uh, we also, of course, learn something about them as people from their gaffes. Gaffes like Rick Perry's brain freeze oops thing at last week's CNBC debate. Or Newt Gingrich demanding that politicians who took money from Freddie Mac give that money back, even though his own lobbying firm took something like $1.6 million from Freddie Mac. Gaffs happen. People screw up. Newt Gingrich also insisting at one point this year that he did not believe what he himself had said about Paul Ryan's Medicare-killing budget. He said anybody quoting him saying that was lying. Don't quote me. If you quote me, it's a lie. But there's one candidate in the race this year who is different. The art project formerly known as Herman Cain uh, is giving us a whole different way of looking at stuff like this on the campaign trail this year. Herman Cain is purportedly a presidential candidate, but he has essentially no campaign staff to speak of. He also uh, continually makes what are treated as gaffes, but even though the media treats them as gaffes, they are frankly too perfect to actually just be mistakes. More often than not, when it, what he does that gets covered as a mistake, as a gaffe, is really a sort of genius, obscure, has to be deliberate cultural reference. It's art referencing art. And we have, we have a rich tradition of this, right? I mean, you can't understand the genius of what these Muppets are doing here to explain the letter G unless you know that they haven't just come up with this whole competitive school singing conceit out of nowhere. They are making reference to another cultural product that is the TV show, Glee. Art referencing art. 
You cannot truly appreciate, for example, the subtle glory of Lou Barlow from Dinosaur Jr. doing a soft-spoken acoustic emo version of the song Round and Round, unless you know that the song was made famous by this hair band. You can't get the genius unless you know that the band that originally did this is a hair band called Rat with two T's. It's art referencing art, or at least art referencing hairband. It's, it's an internal cultural reference. And in order to understand the Herman Cain art project, you not only have to understand modern Republican presidential politics, you also have to understand what he is doing as his art project. You have to understand the breadth of cultural genius that he is drawing upon to make his art. Herman Cain is begging us, all of us, to please get in on the joke. So in chronological order, when Herman Cain finished that Iowa debate and randomly started talking about a great poet in his closing statement, what was the great bit of poetry that he was referencing? It was the theme song to the Pokemon movie. Life can be a challenge. Life can be a challenge. Life can seem impossible. Life can seem impossible. It's never easy. But it's never easy when, when there's so, so much, much on the line. Is Herman Cain quoting the Pokemon movie during a presidential debate. Then there was Herman Cain's 999 tax plan. Where was the only other place in nature that a 999 tax plan already existed? The video game called SimCity. SimCity is not just a video game. It is an old school, awesome video game about urban planning. The makers of SimCity, clearly in on the joke at this point, even launched their own attack ad against Herman Cain. My 999 economic growth and jobs plan. SimCity clearly realizing what's going on here and getting the genius of it. With video games like SimCity and, and songs like the theme from the Pokemon movie uh, checked off his list, Herman Cain's art project uh, has since decided to move on to um, other movies. I'm proud to know the Koch brothers. I'm very proud to know the Koch brothers. I am the Koch brothers' brother from another mother. Yes. I'm their brother from another mother. Yes, you have heard the brother from another mother thing before. Somewhere. Before. You have nothing. Just like me. I wouldn't say nothing. He has me. His brother from another mother. That would be Rush Hour 3. When you are pulling quotes from the third film in a trilogy like Rush Hour, I submit to you that you are trying to tell the people something. And at this point, it should have been clear to everybody involved what exactly was going on here. But just in case it wasn't clear enough, today, Herman Cain tied a nice little bow on top during a campaign stop in Nashua, New Hampshire. We've got plenty of experts. And a leader knows how to use those experts. We need a leader, not a reader. We need a leader, not a reader. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you The Simpsons Movie. 
I've narrowed your choices down to five unthinkable options. Each will cause untold misery. I pick number three. You don't even want to read them first? I was elected to lead, not to read. Number three. Hat tip to the website, Talking Points Memo, for flagging that as the cultural reference, the cultural source today for the Herman Cain Art Project's latest Not a Gaffe. The Herman Cain campaign is an art project about running for president. That much is clear. But the thing that is underappreciated, the thing that I think deserves some attention, even maybe from the art world, is that this is not just an art project. This is a really good art project. It is complicated. It is widely sourced. It is pulling from movies and songs and video games and even TV shows that were turned into movies. The 2012 election will likely be remembered for many things, right? But, the, but, the, but Herman Cain pulling off really quite good political performance art for months at a time right in the middle of it is something we will all be able to tell our grandkids about. I am dying to see the next act. Wait till you see my smile Torture was a big part of this debate, uh, the, the talk about torture, about whether or not we should uh, use waterboarding, we should use torture. And six out of every eight Republican candidates believes that you should use torture. Uh, and let's, let's, listen to, um, let's listen to Herman Cain, who seems to make up his mind on the spot all the time. This is clip number one. Stephen Wright, I served on an aircraft carrier during the Vietnam War. I believe that torture is always wrong in all cases. What is your stance on torture? I believe in following the procedures that have been established by our military. I do not agree with torture, period. However, However. I will trust the judgment of our military leaders to determine what is torture and what is not torture. That is the critical consideration. Okay. Okay, that's that's not a period. No. When you say however, that's not a period. Period means you're done talking. But when you say period and go however, that's not a period. Okay. And Herman Cain may not know this, but when we say our military, military. leaders, our military leaders against waterboarding. Well, but commander in chief Hello. Oh. I mean, you know, that's it, that's what I'm saying. I'll trust our, our military leaders. He is the military leader. He is saying out of one side of his mouth that he is for torture and out of the other that he is not. And then when he gets to the specificity... That's so weird that Herman Cain would do that, though. Say one thing and another thing at the same time. No. When has he ever done that except every time he talks? You have to give him a break. He is just <laughs> making it up he's, as he goes as he along. Goes along. Yeah, yeah. And then, that's, you know, he's decided that's how he's going to do it and, uh, you know, all the power to him. This is Kane talking about the specifics of waterboarding. This is clip two. Mr. Kane, of course, you're familiar with the long-running debate we've had about whether waterboarding constitutes torture or is it an enhanced interrogation te technique. I agree that it was an enhanced interrogation technique. And then you would support it as president. You would return to yes. that policy. I would return to that policy. I don't see it as torture. I see it as an enhanced interrogation technique. Congresswoman, Congresswoman Bachman, you're... 
Yeah, see, it's an enhanced interrogation technique, folks. It, that, that's like calling rape an enhanced mating technique, isn't it? <laughs> but lest we not lead you to believe that uh, Herman Cain is the only person who likes waterboarding, just when you, when you need it most, America, you get Michelle Bachman. This is clip number three talking about waterboarding. If I were president, I would be willing to use waterboarding. I think it was very effective. It gained information for our country. And I, and I also would like to say that today, under Barack Obama, he is allowing the ACLU to run the CIA. You need to understand that today, today, we, it, when we... Uh, uh, it, when we interdict a terrorist on the battlefield, we have no jail for them. We have nowhere to take them. We have no CIA interrogation anymore. It is as though we have decided we want to lose in the war on terror under President Obama. That's not my strategy. My strategy will be that the United States will be victorious in the war on terror. Right. We've decided to lose the war on terror. The linchpin in the war on terror. The, the whole purpose of the war on terror <laughs> was to get one man, mm -hmm. and they got that one man, and President Obama got that one man, not good enough for this woman, uh, uh, Michelle, Michelle, Bach. Bach. Michelle Bachman, even with that haircut. Let me just, even I, with that haircut, or whatever <laughs> it is that she did to her hair there that made her scarier than she was somehow the week before. I, I can't get over the fact that, that, she is t that they are going to this argument that the president is soft on terror. Well, uh, it's a losing argument, I think. I but think it's, it's a wrong, forget the losing. I mean, yes, it's a losing argument. And it's only going to play to their base, and that's the problem with these debates. But, but let me, can I just get back to Herman Cain for a second? He said, I'll. Whenever you want, you can go back. I there. will. I, I'm for whatever the military officers say. Well, according to the military. F field manual, uh, waterboarding is torture, and you don't do it. So according to the military, you don't do that. So, and of course, none of those reporters would say that back to him. According to the Army field manual, waterboarding is torture. Are you against the Army field manual? No one would say that. And right. so the, it's just, again, these are, are facts are optional in these debates. Uh, the report, and what, and what happens in these debates, too, is I, the last one with Maria Bartiromo sitting there saying nothing important um, or accurate is that they is like is if they say something and the reporter doesn't challenge them i think the the average person at home saying they go well that must be right yeah the reporter didn't say anything. Well, that's true. I mean, Kane though was saying in 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 that last exchange, he was saying he would just defer to whatever the military leaders say. Right. It would be nice if somebody did say somebody on that stage, even if it's not one of the moderators, came out and said, "Well, actually, the military leaders say that waterboarding it, is it, torture, and you can't do it. It is right. illegal." Nobody said it, and then neither right. did the reporters. No. And then seeing the currency right. that you get for being in favor of waterboarding, uh, Congresswoman Bachman comes out and reiterates that. She is in favor of it. Gets a more rousing applause. I mean, there might have been mm -hmm. more Minnesotan <laughs> torturers in the audience than there were, uh, you know, backers of Herman Cain. But again, you're talking about um, applauding torture inside the Republican Hall. When you hear a, a candidate say that they're in favor of torture, and you hear Herman Cain defend himself uh, on torture, that you understand that six out of eight of these, with Ron, uh, Ron Paul and John Huntsman uh, laying back, uh, six out of eight of these candidates said that they're in favor of torture, which is just a philosophical difference laid bare.
The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. Quick 2012 update. We've talked about for a while that Newt Gingrich really should be coming ahead as one of the more nuanced candidates in the Republican Party, especially as people like Herman Cain, Rick Perry, Bachman, and uh, who else? Mitt Romney start striking people as a little bit nuts. And that is happening. And really, now he is, I guess, free to say crazier stuff because now Newt Gingrich has said that child labor laws are actually stupid. Gingrich said core policies of protecting unionization and bureaucratization against children in the poorest neighborhoods, crippling them by putting them in schools that fail, has done more to create income inequality in the U.S. than any other single policy. It is tragic what we do in the poorest neighborhoods and trapping children in, first of all, child laws, which are truly stupid. So what he's basically saying is if you tell people that they shouldn't go to work before they're 14 or 16 and you're totally poor, that you're actually taking away an opportunity for the student to excel and that really there would be no downside to not having child labor laws. We've heard this a million times before. We've heard this with race discrimination laws. The idea that because people are just good people and nobody would ever take advantage of anyone, you don't need any of these laws anymore, I find patently absurd. It also sounds like he's saying that families could be benefiting from putting their very young children to work. Well, he is saying, you know, you can get the schools to basically hire students to be the janitors instead of having actual unionized janitors that make too much. Well, by the way, if you get rid of all those janitors, they lose their jobs. How does that help unemployment? Yes, a couple of kids who should be studying get jobs and help their poor families, but people are out of work. You're putting janitors out of work. I don't understand. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's a lot of... Uh... A lot of businesses in the United States that like what he's saying. Well, no Gingrich is promising plenty more of this. He says that you're going to see from me extraordinarily radical proposals to fundamentally change the culture of poverty in America and give people a chance to rise very rapidly. Somehow I think he's, putting... he's right. He's absolutely right. Most of that statement is 100% true. <laughs> <laughs> he's right that it's very radical to put ch poor children to work as janitors in their school. That is an odd proposal. That's, that's true. Yes, yeah, a radical proposal, and he will fundamentally change the culture of poverty in the U.S. <laughs> For the better or worse, I guess, what we're disagreeing on. But giving people a chance to rise rapidly, uh, maybe not. Yeah, I don't know. Rise, rise to the closet where the detergent is kept up on the third floor, maybe. That's the only rise I'm thinking of.
If media want to do just one big thing when they cover political campaigns, that thing could be to tell voters when candidates are lying. But there's a maddening, unwritten media rule against being so direct, even when the evidence is overwhelming. Texas Republican Rick Perry released an ad that features Barack Obama saying, we've been a little bit lazy over the last few decades. To which Perry responds, can you believe that? That's what our president thinks is wrong with America? That Americans are lazy? Well, rather unsurprisingly, Obama did not say that. The clip comes from him telling a bunch of business leaders he thought the government could do more to woo corporations to do business in the U.S. But press reports like the one in the New York Times that said that Perry's ad takes a sharper tone than his earlier ones hardly made that crystal clear. A later Times report was about as forceful as they get, suggesting that some of Perry's recent attacks have drifted into the realm of falsehood. Well, a few days later, Mitt Romney released an ad of his own, which included a clip of Obama saying, if we keep talking about the economy, we're going to lose. Well, this one would get a high school student an F, since it's an edit of a comment from 2008 in which Obama was quoting someone from the John McCain campaign. The words right before the clip Romney uses are, and I quote. Still, though this deception did raise some hackles, ABC's Jake Tapper and CBS Evening News called out the Romney campaign on it, the overriding media response seems to be reflected in the New York Times piece that called Romney's ad combative and a step up in the intensity of the campaign. The paper even seemed to reward it, saying it suggests Romney trying to show Republicans that he can take on Mr. Obama aggressively. Well, as long as journalists continue to treat deceit of the public as a legitimate strategy, it will be democracy that gets aggressed. One pill makes you larger and one pill makes you small. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as five $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. One suggestion for winning in Iowa and New Hampshire this year, do not campaign there. Do not kiss babies. Keep a very low profile. Uh, Politico.com noting this week that the candidates at the top of the polls in the Republican primaries right now are the ones who have spent the least amount of time meeting with voters in the early states. Look at who's ahead. It's Newt Gingrich and Herman Cain in the early states, both of whom, noted by, as noted by Politico, quote, ride high in early state polls, having also spent more time promoting their own interests and book projects than on the trail in Iowa and New Hampshire. 
Rick Santorum, meanwhile, has been camping out in Iowa, making a point of visiting every single one of that state's 99 counties. And yet, Mr. Santorum still polling at mm, roughly 4% there. Also, John Huntsman focusing his entire campaign on New Hampshire, only polling at 9% there and can't get a bounce to save his life. And don't forget poor Tim Pawlenty, who sunk everything into Iowa, who ran really, really, really hard in Iowa and then dropped out after the Ames straw poll. This year, for whatever reason, early state campaigning does not translate into doing well. It doesn't seem to be cutting it for Republican candidates. What does seem to be having an impact for the candidates in the polls uh, is the debates. Tons of people watching the debates, and there have been a ton of debates. The Republican candidates have already completed 10 of them, along with two forums and one sort of fakey, super-friendly, two-person non-debate between Newt Gingrich and Herman Cain, for which the tickets were really expensive. Uh, and there's apparently going to be three more debates just between now and Christmas. These things have been the greatest show on earth. I mean, at the very first debate, we were reminded why it is so great that Ron Paul is always around at these things. Senator, are you suggesting that heroin and prostitution are an exercise of liberty? Up until this this past century, you know, for over 100 years they were legal. What you're inferring is, you know what, if we legalize heroin tomorrow, everybody's going to use heroin. How many people here would use heroin if it was legal? I bet nobody would put the hand, oh yeah, I need the government to take care of me. I don't want to use heroin, so I need these laws. I never thought heroin would get applause here in South Carolina. <laughs> That was the first Republican debate back in May when Ron Paul says, essentially, we should legalize heroin and the audience goes nuts. Then at the first debate in Iowa in August, Rick Santorum, uh, the man who famously compared being gay to doing something that he described as man on dog, uh, he made what appeared to be what sounded like a bit of unsolicited pro-gay rights testimony. I don't apologize for the Iranian people being free for a long time, and now they're under a, under a malocracy that, that uh, tramples the rights of women, tramples the rights of gays, tramples the rights of people all, all throughout their society. Rick Santorum stands up for the rights of gay people in Iran. He does not appear to have changed his opposition to gay rights in this country. But thanks to the Republican debate show, weird stuff happens. Rick Santorum speaking up for gay Iranians is now a thing that exists in the world. I love this show. Uh, then at the next debate in September, we learned another new thing about Republican debate audiences. Uh, nobody expected legalizing heroin to be an applause line in the first place. But at the NBC debate at the Reagan Library, presiding over a record number of executions became an applause line. Your state has executed 234 death row inmates, more than any other governor in modern times. Have you, have you struggled to sleep at night um, uh, with the idea that any one of those might have been uh, innocent? In the state of Texas, if you come into our state and you kill one of our children, you kill a police officer, you're involved with another crime and you kill one of our citizens, you will face the ultimate justice in the state of Texas, and that is you will be executed. What do you make of... Uh... What do you make of that dynamic just happened here, the uh, mention of the execution of 234 people drew applause? I think Americans understand justice. Then at the next debate, just a couple of days later, the Republican debate audience made itself famous again. Let me ask you this hypothetical question. A healthy 30-year-old young man has a good job, makes a good living, but decides, you know what, I'm not going to spend 200 or $300 a month 
for health insurance because I'm healthy. I don't need it. But, you know, something terrible happens. uh, All of a sudden he needs it. My advice to him would have a major medical policy, but not before. But he doesn't have that. He doesn't have it, and he's and he needs he needs intensive care for six months. Who pays? That's what freedom is all about: taking your own risk. This whole idea that you have to prepare and take care of everybody. But Congressman, are you saying that society should just let him die? No. Yeah. The debate crowd, yeah, saying if somebody who doesn't have insurance gets sick, yeah, let them die. Then the next debate was when it became clear why it is that Rick Perry is the last kid on the bench when it comes to choosing up sides in debate club. I think Americans just don't know sometimes which Mitt Romney they're dealing with. Is it the Mitt Romney that was on the side of against the Second Amendment before he was for the Second Amendment? Was it was before he was before the social programs uh, from the standpoint of he was for uh, standing up for Roe versus Wade before he was against verse, uh, Roe versus Wade? Yesterday we found out through Admiral Mullen that uh, Hakani. Uh, has been involved with, and that's the uh, uh, terrorist group uh, directly associated with the Pakistani uh, countries. And that's exactly what I'm going to bring to Washington when I go there in November, or excuse me, in, in January of 2013. That's what they call foreshadowing. Uh, at the next debate, we're now into October, we really started to see that the uh, Rick Perry, Mitt Romney bickering we've all come to know and love uh, about the Republican debate show, that that was not only going to be exciting, it was going to be funny. I'll tell you this, though. We have the lowest number of kids as a percentage uninsured of any state in America. You have the highest. You have over, you hold, I'm, I'm still, I'm still speaking. I'm still speaking. I'm still speaking. We have... Uh, we have Less than 1% of our kids, they're uninsured. You have a million kids uninsured in Texas. A million kids. Under President Bush, the percentage uninsured went down. Under your leadership, it's gone up. I'm still speaking. That was just the, uh, I'm still, I'm still, you can do this even fighting with yourself. Anyway, uh, that was just the warm-up for the following debate a week later where the Romney-Perry storyline really peaked. The October 18th episode of the Republican Debate Show was the one where Mitt Romney laid hands on Rick Perry. Mitt, you lose all of your standing from my perspective because you hired illegals in your home and you knew for it, about it for a year. And the idea that you stand here before us and talk about that you're strong on immigration is on its face the height of hypocrisy. <laughs> Governor Romney? Rick, um, I don't think I've ever hired an illegal in my life. And so I'm afraid, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to finding your facts on that because that just doesn't... I'll tell you what the facts just, are. Rick, again. You had Rick, the you, I'm speaking, your newspaper, I'm speaking, the newspaper, I'm speaking, I'm speaking. Are you just going to keep talking? Yes, sir. Let me finish with my, what I have to say. Look, Rick. I thought, this, I thought this Republicans tough, followed this the rules. Tough, this has been a tough couple of debates for Rick. And, and I understand that. And so you're going to get... You're going to get testy. We hired a lawn, a lawn company to, to mow our lawn. And they had illegal immigrants that were working there. And when that was pointed out to us, we let them go. And we went to them and said, just, just, you have a problem with allowing someone to finish speaking. And I suggest that if you want to become president of the United States, you got to let both people speak. So first, let me speak. So, So we went to the company and we said, look, you can't have any illegals working on our property. That's, I'm running for office for Pete's sake. I can't have illegals. 
running for office for Pete's sake. I'm speaking. I'm speaking. That performance, speaking, uh, followed a few weeks later by the oops debate. I will tell you, it's three agencies of government when I get there that are gone. Commerce, education, and the, um, uh, what's the third one there? Let's see. <laughs> Com- you need five. Oh, five. Okay. So, five. commerce, education, and uh, the... Um, uh, um, EPA? EPA. There you go. No, again. Let's talk. Let's talk deposition. Seriously? Is EPA the one you were talking about? No, sir. No, sir. We were talking about the um, agencies of government. EPA needs to be rebuilt. There's no doubt about that. But you can't name the third one? The third agency of government, I would would do away with the education, uh, the uh, (laughs) commerce, and let's see. I can't. The third one, I can't. Sorry. (laughs) Oops. What do you think he did have written down? he was looking at that didn't help anyway uh, just a few days later we got another one of those clarifying moments i'm speaking uh, about republican debate audiences mr kane of course you're familiar with the long-running debate we've had about whether waterboarding constitutes torture or is it an enhanced interrogation tech technique in the last campaign republican nominee john mccain and barack obama agreed that it was torture and should not be allowed legally and that the army field manual should be the methodology used to interrogate enemy combatants do you agree with that or do you disagree, sir? I agree that it was an enhanced interrogation technique. And then you would support it as president. You would return to yes. that policy. I would return to that policy. I don't see it as torture. I see it as an enhanced interrogation technique. Congressman, Congresswoman Bachman, your opinion on this question that our emailer asked. If I were president, I would be willing to use waterboarding. I think it was very effective. It gained information for our country. Woo! I love the hooter. The clapping and then the hoot. Woo! Applauding torture. And just to be clear that that's what they're doing, they applaud it twice. Woo! Waterboarding. Over this past weekend, there was another one of those forums. Uh, This one probably most notable for the fact that three of the six candidates in attendance cried during the event. Uh, But perhaps maybe a tribute to House Speaker John Boehner. Who cries a lot? Who cried last week? I always find it charming. In any case, the Republican debate show is not stopping anytime soon. Ten debates, two forums, and one two-person debate-ish thing already in the can. There are set to be 13 more. 13 more through mid-March. And that's even before we get to the real presidential debates during the general election. I know it is inevitable, but I'm going to be so sad when this show gets canceled. Jay, my name is Dennis Campbell. I'm calling from the beautiful land of Wales in the United Kingdom. I'm a big fan of the show, and I'm editor of something called UK Progressive, the e-magazine. We cover politics and business, and I also do reporting for other media outlets on the Middle East. I especially love the most recent podcast on the Middle East peace process, and uh, wanted to bring to your attention something you may not be aware of. The uh, Egyptian blogger Allah Abdel Fattah has been arrested by the Transitional Military Authority, the SCAF, in Egypt. 
and he's being held and likely will face the death penalty um, because they're charging him with inciting religious clashes um, and uh, it is really just a series of trumped up charges. Um, Allah and his nine month pregnant wife Manel were tremendous resources to me on stories as well as to my book on the revolution and the use of social media. And what I'm asking all your listeners to do is to contact the U.S. State Department on behalf of Allah, and uh, in particular write to Secretary of State uh, Hillary Clinton. The United States sends more than $2 billion in military and other aid to Egypt. This uh, transitional military authority, they've delayed elections and now they've delayed the trial of Mubarak until the 28th of December. And compared to, to what we've seen in Tunisia, this is just a, a long and protracted struggle despite our great joy and what we witnessed in February covering the fabulous story of, of freedom there. This really needs to be on the front burner because a man's life hangs in the balance. Um, as I would say to anyone from, from any party, we may not agree on some issues, but I certainly respect Allah, your, anyone's passion and right to say what they think and what they believe. That's a pillar of any democracy. And sadly, it's not what we're seeing under this quote-unquote temporary Egyptian military government. Thanks, Jay, and to all your listeners for writing to Secretary of State Clinton and others to increase pressure to see this good man released. His only crime was speaking up. Jay, Chuck in Salt Lake City here. Hey, uh, I am calling because I'd like to speak to some of your uh, maybe listeners who are my age or older who may be hesitant to use the uh, social networking aspects uh, of, the, of the best of the left. Uh, so to those people, uh, I would say this. Go right away and sign up for a Twitter account and donate that account to Jay through his website. After that's done, you won't have to lift another finger because the followers will come. You really don't have to ask people to follow you. They just will follow you. I've been shocked. People I don't even know are following me on Twitter, and now all of them are getting messages from Jay. Facebook, uh, again, you get that account set up, and uh, the only thing about Facebook is maybe you do got to uh, reach out to one or two people that you know. Uh, once those people are confirmed as friends, and confirm you, then uh, people that you both know will magically start requesting to be part of your group. You confirm them, then you go to the Best of the Left website, and you scroll down, it's right on the first page, and you look at the clip, you find the clips that you love. And you click the little F underneath that clip, a dialogue pops up, you type in your username and your password to Facebook, and you're done. That's been added to your Facebook page. Then all the people on your list can click on that and see the wonderful clip that you love from Jay's show. Uh, I'm sure your younger listeners are going to think it's quite amusing that I'm walking through all these steps, but uh, the fact of the matter is uh, I never had any interest in Facebook. Uh, or any kind of social networking until I realized that I could, uh, you know, share uh, clips with so many people that I know so easily. And it's quite possible that people, you know, maybe my age or older, or maybe even some that are younger, uh, are a little bit intimidated by the whole social networking thing because they think there's going to be a lot of effort involved. Well, there really isn't a lot of effort involved, and 
and uh, you're going to feel real good about yourself being able to pass on this progressive word that Jake makes so easy for us to spread. So keep up the good work, Jay. And uh, if you haven't jumped on this social networking ba uh, bandwagon, uh, now's the time to do it because uh, it's, it's a great way to spread the progressive word. Thanks again. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So uh, a couple of things today. First of all, uh, attention web developers. This is an interesting announcement. I, I, I have a project I'm working on in partnership with uh, the David Pakman Show as well as the Young Turks. And I'm not going to tell you anything about it at the moment, but uh, if you are interested in helping develop a website for it, we are interested in talking to you, giving you the details of the project, and having you submit a proposal, and then actually paying you for your time. So we're not looking for just volunteers. We're actually looking for a web developer who wants a gig, a paying gig. So uh, if you're interested in hearing more, contact me at j at bestoftheleft.com. Secondly, I have another highly niche announcement to make, uh, so stick around for that, but it starts with a story. So several weeks ago, I, I met up for dinner and a movie with a couple of listeners turned friends, people who, you know, they used to just be listeners, but then several months ago or, or more than a year ago, uh, you know, we met up and became friends and have been in touch ever since. So, uh, so we went out, this is uh, myself, Katie, and Keith. And, uh, and so we went, we had dinner, we saw a kind of an, you know, an independent movie about the death penalty <laughs> and, uh, and then afterwards got coffee and chatted. And, uh, and so after all that, I thought to myself, you know what that was? That was profoundly pleasant. Uh, we should make a habit out of that. We should do this every month. That's how much I enjoyed it. Uh, we, we should do this, uh, at least, at least once a month. And then immediately after having that thought, I thought, well, sure, no, that's a good idea. We should clearly make this a monthly thing, but uh, that begs the question, why, why limit it to just the three of us? Why not open it up and invite any, anyone who wants to come, have dinner, independent, uh, hopefully political, hopefully progressive sort of movie we can watch, and then maybe grab some coffee and chat afterwards? It sounds, uh, it sounds like the sort of thing that people would be interested in. So that's what we're going to do. So, uh, so Katie and I, uh, one of the people who attended the, the uh, original gathering, are going to co-organize this. So it's going to be every second Tuesday of every month. Uh, so starting with December 13th, coming up in a couple of weeks. So this is going to be our first attempt at this. I'm sure things will go wrong and it'll uh, be a minor disaster, but uh, but it should be fun anyways. So this is happening in the Lakeview neighborhood on the north side of Chicago. And uh, for the uh, vast, vast majority of you who don't live anywhere uh, nearby and to whom this is not relevant, I promise to at least make it worth your while uh, by uh, giving a review of the movie we see afterwards. So you'll have to hear me talk about it every once in a while on the show and say, hey, we got another meeting coming up in Chicago, and I'll tell you what movie we're going to watch, and then, uh, and then I'll review it afterwards and let you know what I think. So at the moment, obviously, I'm reaching out to listeners of this show, uh, extending the invitation for them to come and join, uh, join the event. Uh, we will also be inviting people we know personally around the city, and uh, as we go on, we will be extending the invitations to the larger kind of progressive community and, and try to reach out to different people in different ways. 
So we hope to get a really interesting mix of people uh, gathered together, and it should be fun. And since it'll be on a regular schedule, people can kind of plan for it. That is the hope anyways, and so we'll see what this builds into. Uh, anyways, I, I will not bother giving uh, the detailed information on the show because that's worthless. You'd have to go look it up anyways. But uh, we've created a Facebook event and uh, just, to, just to start with, and that'll be linked up in the show notes of this episode. So uh, go check that out if you care to join. And if you have any questions whatsoever and you know you want to come but you're, you don't know where to go or who to ask for or whatever, send me an email, j at bestoftheleft.com. So that's it for today. I'm just going to thank a couple of members before I go. Amy L. signed up uh, a long time ago, February 2nd of 2010, signed up for a leftist yearly membership, as did Eliza C. also signed up on, uh, on well, February 20th, but also signed up for a leftist yearly membership. So huge thanks uh, to a couple of longtime members, Amy and Eliza, and of course all the other members and donors who helped keep the show going. I couldn't do it without you guys. Everyone else can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. Don't ever forget that. Uh, details on how to share individual clips, which is incredibly helpful, can be found in the show notes of every episode. So share your favorite clips with your networks, however you like to do that. You can stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Oh, we'll take you out in the open